You are listening to Pieces of Life, a new Infinite Jigsaw series where Danny asks people about their stories. This is the Infinite Jigsaw podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and with a genuine incentive to improve sense making. Well, in today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Catherine Little. For many years, Kathy worked in the creative industries where she, through talent, hard work, and a cultivated reputation, rose to achieve high status and high regard until one day where she fell to a sudden and seemingly inexplicable illness which took away much of her eyesight and she joins me today to talk about her life before during and after this tragic experience kathy welcome to the infinite jigsaw thank you danny thank you um well this series uh, entitled life stories is meant to highlight some of uh, life's defining or let's say, life-altering events. But I think that the, the context of background and what came before is also important. So, Cathy, would you mind telling us a bit about your early life, where you was brought up, went to school prior to starting your career? Sure, of course, yeah. So I am, um, let's get the gruesome details out of the way, I am 58 years old, born in mm-hmm. 1964, and I was brought up in leafy southwest London, Kingston-upon-Thames, Um I have one sister who's 18 months younger than me and two absolutely um, ideal, wonderful parents. They were amazing. They were uh, very, very kind of liberal in their views, but not overly so. They were just great. My mother was a French uh, a linguist. My father was um, a lecturer at Kingston University and we lived in the centre of Kingston and uh, I had an uneventful, um, rather smug childhood, went to a bog standard comprehensive school called Coombe Girls School, which is um, now apparently a good school. But when I went there, it wasn't great. But then we are talking about the 70s. Okay. Um, went to an all girls school and um, had a very um, normal, nice upbringing. So much so, I was about to say... I'm not very interesting, really, because I remember <laughs> when I did go off to university, more on that in a second, I went to Sussex University, which in those days was the kind of radical left wing cool place where cool people from London went. Okay. I remember in my first year sitting there in, in our, my room with one of my friends, bemoaning the fact that we weren't as groovy and cool, as interesting as most of the people around us. And I remember my friend saying to me, I oh, mean, God, it would help if my parents were divorced. And <laughs> I will never forget that. So, you know, very uh, nice upbringing, the usual stuff, Kingston-upon-Thames until 18 years of age. What happened when I was 18 was because I was um, influenced by my mother, who was a massive um, Francophone, Francophile, I decided rather than going to university, I would go off to just outside Paris and be a au pair girl for a year, perfect my French. So 
uh, got on a train at Waterloo at the age of 18 in 1982, 40 years ago, with a huge suitcase and went off overland through via a four hour ferry journey to a town called Compiègne, just outside Gare du Nord in Paris, and spent a year there um, basically looking after two little boys and learning, perfecting my French, living with a lovely family. Again, not much to see here, had a great time, absolutely loved it. Came back and then embarked on my four-year university degree at Groovy, aforementioned Sussex University. <laughs> so, so far, so uh, middle-class upbringing, uh-huh. I guess you'd say. Um I then, uh, when I started at Sussex, I did a four-year degree in international relations with French. Um, did find the jump from school to university slightly baffling, and I do remember going in to see my personal tutor in my second term because um, I, as I said, hadn't been to a great school, and I do remember going in to see him and saying, I don't think I should be here. Um, I don't really understand what my tutors are on about, literally. And he mm. looked at me and said, are you questioning our um, entrance and recruitment policy, Catherine? Because we know what we're doing. But I literally did feel that jump from A-level to university and all the kind of academic speak. To this day, I still find it quite baffling. But I managed to get through my degree, spent a lovely year in Aix-en-Provence at the University of Aix-Marseille, again, perfecting my French and um, uh, getting obtaining a certificate in political studies there. And so left Sussex University in 1987 with uh, a degree and no idea about what I wanted to do for a mm. career. None whatsoever. Chucked out into, um, I guess, what was then Thatcher's Britain, um, having had a fairly um, left-wing university education. And that was um, blinking into the sunlight, I seem to remember. So... If I carry on with my journey and how I ended up with my career, I worked for um, a travel company because I had languages Mm -hmm. and had an amazing year or two taking American and Canadian high school kids around Europe, doing 15 day tours where we do Paris, Italy. Uh, We go to Italy, we'd go to Munich, we'd go to interesting places in Europe and working 20 hours a day with the sometimes quite challenging American high school kids. I'd never met an American person in my life. So um, quite a culture shock. And I can remember um, being with one group in the south of France in uh, in, in uh, Cannes, actually. And I had an afternoon off, so I went further down the beach and did what all European women do, which is to sunbathe topless away from my group which I'd always done because my mother and sister and I always did on our holidays in the South of France, like every woman, a woman. And I can remember one of the students seeing me reporting back to the teacher and I was hauled in and absolutely torn apart mm. for my disgusting, disgraceful behaviour. I have other stories like that, such as taking a group through Pigalle on the uh, 14th of July amidst firecrackers and uh, to get back to our hotel and again being hauled in what were you thinking young lady that discussed disgusting obscene sex shops etc etc so quite an interesting um uh insight into american evangelist christian southern state sensibilities Mm. 
And they didn't even give you a pass because you were, in air quotes, European. No, 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 no. I mean, they had no concept at all of, of uh, really European culture. Um, and, you know, we, we know now from what, what we hear about evangelist, um, uh, not evangelist, fundamental Christians down in the South, they are, you know, they're hardcore. So all of these experiences I'm talking about, I guess they were formative. They, I'm skipping over them, but I had a lot of, I was pretty independent at a young age and got on with stuff. Um, massive pull towards France and all things French and the language, which I still have. But, uh, yeah, still life's ticking along pretty nicely for me. I tend to, you know, achieve what I set out to achieve. I then got back from doing too many tours, too exhausted, and thought this is no life for a 24, 25-year-old. I can't go on like this. So I enrolled at Kingston University, went back to live with my parents and did a postgraduate degree in human resources management. And I cannot tell you how little I knew about what that meant. Mm. I really still had no idea about what I wanted to do, even though I was 24, 25, but I just thought, hmm. I'm good with people. I'll go into what was then called personnel. Big mistake, I've got to say. More on that later. Did my postgraduate qual, got my qualification. And then in 1989, summer, I saw an advert in The Guardian for um, uh, a personnel assistant at the BBC, BBC Enterprises, as it was then called, now BBC Worldwide. And lo and behold, I got the job. That was very exciting, um, you, you know, walking down to TV centre and going into the BBC buildings felt, yeah, very, very exciting. And uh, I was very pleased with myself. Mm. So embarked on my first job. By this time, I'm 25, 26. Um, so I've hung around a bit. I've done a lot. Um, and I started my first job as a sort of lowly personnel assistant, doing the typing, setting up the interviews, and I guess fast forwarding, I then went up, you know, the career ladder of human resources, as it later became known, and then senior talent management, where I ended up. I started working in HR in 1989, and I left in 2017. So do the maths. Yeah. Um, quite a long time. Shelled out a couple of kids along the way. Um, but went back to work pretty much after doing that part-time. My CV is at five years at the BBC, um, where I got a really, really good training in, um, as you can imagine, very, very kind of thorough, robust organisation. Mm. A foray into the music business of no more than nine months. Um, I worked for EMI Records in the middle of Britpop in, the, in mid-95, which was one hell of an eye-opener. Wow. Um, had a great time, absolutely, did very little work. We all went out in the evenings to see bands, all paid for by the company. It was the days when music companies were awash with money, mm. um, and it was one big blur of fun. But let's just say did not suit me ultimately. Pretty damn sexist place to work, the music business in the 90s. Um, I remember one of the record labels that I worked with, had uh, the, the the CEO of that label who shall remain nameless, but he's quite famous. I remember his dealer was called Raz Gold and he used to turn up once a week and sort of strut along the floors of, of, of the label. 
uh, you know, proffering his wares. And uh, coming from the BBC, I was kind of trying to fit in with all this. But yeah, I, I just thought this this is uh, this isn't really me. Mm. So I left there, and then I actually went travelling for three or four years. Then I came back and got a job for three or four months. I beg your pardon. Came back and got a job at uh, British Actors Equity working with the general secretary to restructure the, uh, the the union after the end of the closed shop meant that people didn't have to have an equity card anymore and their mm-hmm. revenues were, were plummeting. So they were in deep trouble. That was an amazingly uh, interesting gig that I absolutely loved. You can imagine how much I was hated by the staff at equity who were trade unionists. Yeah. And I was there to restructure, weed out, make people redundant. And I really developed a thick skin there. Mm. Went from there to Sotheby's in Bond Street for two and a half years, which was absolutely fascinating. Again, working with all the experts, used to go down and see uh, somebody in the pre- impressions department about a piece of recruitment or something, and there'd be a fantastic Modigliani painting leaning up against his desk. And I'd spend of my hour meeting 50 minutes talking about the painting and 10 minutes uh, talking about work. Um, absolutely amazingly interesting, fascinating time. And they were absolutely bonkers, those people. I expected them to be dull, but they were very interesting, crazy group of public school people. And then finally got headhunted to go over Barclay Square, over the road to J. Walter Thompson, big, big global advertising agency where I stayed for many years until I ended up moving within the group to um, an even bigger global agency called Ogilvy and Maver. Um, Got more and more senior, um, bigger team to manage. And my job became, the more senior I got, the more my job became sitting in a room with um, business people and and finance directors, looking at operating plans Mm. and working out how we could get more out of people for less. And I was utterly miserable, stressed, commuting into London because we left London and moved out to the country. Everything I was doing was against my personal values. I didn't go into looking after people naively in inverted commas to be the the hatchet woman, the how can we make Martin Sorrell richer by screwing people into the ground. Um, I still maintain that, you know, my my world of work changed after 2005 when I came back to work after the birth of my second child because of globalization and the tech revolution. I mean, I can remember going to a, a meeting held by one of our grads at JWT, who's now, I don't know, head of marketing at Apple or something and talking about this thing called Facebook. I can remember mm-hmm. it like it was yesterday. And we all sat there, us old people going, oh, my goodness, Facebook. Wow. Check this out. And it was like before and after the world that I worked in and every business model just changed. And the for me as a people person, as the person who looks at culture, morale, retention, it meant that everyone was became more brutal. Everyone was eating everyone else's lunch. All these sort of traditional agencies and communications models were being challenged by mm. up and coming what we call pure play digital agencies. And it just became dog eat dog to an extent where I've never seen so many unhappy people. You know, I, I, I'm still in touch with a friend of mine from Sotheby's and she says Sotheby's is the same. You know, the emails that used to be courteous and, and grown up are now different. 
just just there's a lot more oh aggression in the workplace and this contributed i suppose well we'll come on to what happened to me next to my general malaise my general feeling of exhaustion unhappiness and stress yeah yeah well talking of stress i mean i, I was going to lead on to, to ask you how you're sort of university and then mm. bit between university and career then led into a career that was full of internal stress and, and like this vigorous unrelenting work output but it seems that you, you you kind of either led yourself and was led into those unrelenting hours early on because you said you did the 20-hour days with the tour directing yeah exactly so you were kind of for, for better or worse internally set up to be able to cope with that do you think that that early training and those long hours either helped you or allowed you to allow yourself to to get involved in such a, a vigorous work ethic mm. yeah interesting i um well first of all i had no choice with the tour directing because when you're 24 years old 23 years old i was and you're basically the sort of pivotal person for a group of 40 people in paris or wherever you know you go to bed at midnight and you're up at uh, I don't know five whatever and you don't sleep much you have no choice you know there's always a drama um, but I I have always been quite driven I'm definitely quite driven and I've always had that motor that keeps me going and I must do this I must do it so I am I mean you know I am fairly fairly what you might call alpha in terms of go-getting and um, hard work yeah um, probably to my own detriment and we'll come on to that in a bit but yeah you know I've definitely always had that in me definitely definitely yeah well we're about to know where we ended up but um, the exertion that you underwent eventually erupted into your physical mm. world and let, let's move on to the event and uh, sort of how you felt leading up to that event and what kind of stresses you were under Sure, sure. So, as I said, I, I jumped from um, from J. Walter Thompson, where I'd been a long time and where I was fairly, you know, I'd been, I, had a, I had a lot of equity built up to a bigger job, and which was, with hindsight, a huge mistake, but uh, I was kind of lured into it. And um, I absolutely... Uh, I was absolutely bewildered by the scale of the job, but also by how dysfunctional how dysfunctional the organisation was at that time. Right. Going through a massive amount of change, there was a new global CEO in New York who was at odds with the the UK London management. So uh, first of all, I felt absolutely caught in the middle. I had people there who had applied for my job in the human resources team who didn't clearly didn't want me there. Made my life difficult. Um, I was going through the menopause and I feel now menopause is a word that women can say. There's been such a transformation in that since I left work five years ago because right. I, you couldn't say that word in the workplace five years ago. But I was, I was 51, 52. So do I had you think a, the executive workplace especially or do you think the, the workplace? No, the workplace generally. Well, the executive workplace is where you tend to get older women in their sort of late 40s, or early 50s. And, you know, what the menopause does to some women, and, and certainly did to me, is it makes you extremely tired. Mm -hmm. You get sort of brain fog, not to mention the night sweats and the insomnia. Mm. But for me, I had brain fog. My memory just became worse. 
and and your emotions, your hormones are going berserk. And yet it's not like your pregnancy or anything like that when you can go, hey, I'm pregnant. You you have to carry on. Yeah. Um, and I actually remember um, when I was at JWT, so about 10 years earlier than it, when it happened to me, I can actually remember my global head of human resources, who was a fantastic woman, saying to me, oh, we have this big problem in New York with women in their late 40s, early, early 50s, just behaving so emotionally. <laughs> and I, I, I can't believe that heads of human resources were saying that kind of thing. Okay, it was 10 years ago, but duh, you know, go yeah. for it. Um, without any kind of support or understanding. Anyway, enough. And do you, do you, just, just one more question yeah. on that. Do you, do you think that sometimes the women that are in this period of life we're, we're in those kind of jobs are actually going through an added stress, which is trying to suppress the emanation of these changes they're going through? Yeah, of course, because it ain't sexy. You right. know? Especially if you work, dare I say, especially if you work in an industry, you know, that is, how can I put this, you know, where appearances matter and it's, there's a bit of glamour there and, you know, you've got to look right and, and all of that ridiculous stuff. Right, gotcha. You know, it's, God, you know, and um, it's it's really not, you just don't talk about it. It's like, ugh, go away, you know, go away with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I when I left work, listening to the radio one day and, and hearing Channel 4 have got a po- I've just written a policy on the menopause. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, Channel 4 are great and always have been great on anything to do with, you know, diversity and protected categories and all of that. They're fantastic. But I think most companies now are acknowledging that this is a thing for 50 percent of the population. <laughs> um so, yeah, that definitely was all coalescing for me at the same time. But but the job, as I said, just had become, you know, the combination of the stuff I talked about from 2005, 2006, the world of, of work generally, profit-making organizations, shareholder value, tougher and tougher and tougher globalization. And then um, the job I did with all the political uh, strands there and the scope of the job. And I and my moral compass to sound a little bit pompous for a minute, my moral compass was being kind of like was whizzing around like crazy. I just couldn't I did not want to be doing this job, sitting in a room, cutting and then going out and having miserable people come into my office and tell me how unhappy they were the whole time. And I didn't see any joyful people in that organization for I mean, including the management team. They were just on their benders. They were exhausted and crying and, you know, being horrible to each other. So it was not, it was a horrible, toxic environment for me personally. Yeah. Not saying, I just found it really miserable. So I guess that kind of really sets the scene, Danny, for how, where I was when I got sick. I guess I can go on to talk about that now. Yes, please do. So I, I, um, I got sick in October 2017, but I actually walked out of my Ogilvy job, which is, you know, something you don't do. I actually walked out of the job with water pouring down my face, tears. I think it was around about April, March, April of that year, because I just couldn't. I let, I had some kind of breakdown, meltdown. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I let it go on far too long. Um, soaked up the stress, the exhaustion, and just one day left 
and I was walking in a trance to the train station home, um, cried all the way home, got home, locked myself in my bedroom, phoned two of my wisest best mates, was on the phone to them, crying uncontrollably all evening, saying, I can't go on anymore. I can't, I can't, I can't. Went into work the next day and handed in my notice. Um, and uh, they were a bit shocked. But I said to my line HR boss, um, I'm, I can't carry on. I'm not working my notice. You can, I'll work from home, but I'm done. And this place is crazy. And she was actually very good. She saw how, I think she saw the duty of care aspect and she was very supportive. Mm. But basically that was it. I went into the office a few more times. I did the professional thing. I said goodbye to my team. I, I, I wrapped up some loose ends and I basically said goodbye to that world. Spent the summer um, recovering, decompressing, having a nice time, getting reacquainted with my children who were by then, I don't know, 15 and 12. Um, and we got a puppy, more on her later, a little black working cocker spaniel called Jessie. And I just began to get my mojo back and began to think, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Financially, it was a risky thing to do because I was earning a lot of money, but I'll come back on to that mm -hmm. later. Um, but my husband and I looked at the numbers and we can just about survive, <laughs> cut right, right, right back. We can just about manage. And we had some savings. So spent the summer feeling much, much better and all of that. Um, still exhausted, but hey. And this is where the fun starts. I woke up on the 1st of October 2017, I remember it vividly, with um, with a headache and thought nothing of it. I get headaches, got up, carried on with my day, took some paracetamol, headaches still there next day. And my left eye was going a bit sort of weird. And um, I just kept rubbing it, thinking that's, that's strange. I'm not seeing awfully well out of that eye. Um, carried on, took more painkillers. And that evening, we had some friends over for dinner. This is two days later. And I just remember putting a glass of wine to my lips and thinking, oh, my God, I can't touch that. And I really don't want to eat this food. And my eye was getting worse. Next day, I went on, started Googling migraines. I thought, hmm, it says here, if you have a migraine for more than three days, you should go to the doctor. Went to see my GP. He gave me some anti-migraine medication, went home, took the anti-migraine medication, didn't touch the sides. I started, my eyes started to get worse. And by this stage, I'm starting to feel a bit nauseous. Um, and long story short, I spent 10 days to two weeks going in and out of um, GP surgeries, uh, two visits to A&E where I waited, oh God, five six hours to see mm. someone got sent home at the end of the day saying come back tomorrow and you can see um a, an ophthalmic specialist went back the next day saw an ophthalmic specialist who looked at my eyes and said oh yeah you've got something called optic neuritis which is a not uncommon condition which is inflammation of the optic nerves yeah um so i went home he said it'll clear up don't worry so i went home thinking oh great that's that that'll, that'll move on by this stage i am did, did they give you any explanation of why you would have have, have had this no um, condition no, no, no. Or, no okay and i actually had a, had a friend here locally who i rang up because she'd had the same thing and she said to me oh yeah i had that it's really nasty it's really uncomfortable yeah i felt really unwell but but you know 
it was a bit scary because optic neuritis can be a precursor to multiple sclerosis. So it wasn't entirely. Um, uh, so it's not a benign diagnosis at all. It can no, lead on to other things. Yeah. It can lead on to other things. But at that stage, I was I just want to try and convey how ill I was at that stage. Mm. I couldn't get out of bed. I had like the worst flu symptoms I've ever had in my life. I was throwing up a lot. I was shivering, um, sweating one minute, absolutely felt the most unwell I've ever felt in my life. Really, really unwell. Very weak, couldn't eat um, and couldn't. And by this stage, by the way, by a week onwards, my right eye had started to deteriorate as well. And I thought, oh, so un- I was so unwell. I didn't almost didn't clock it. I just thought, oh, damn. Now the other eye's going. I probably got optic neuritis in that eye as well. Mm. So there I am at home with this now I know wrong diagnosis mm. that I'm thinking is going to just clear up. But I'm getting more and more ill. And um, I then get a call from my GP who says, how are you doing? And I told her and she said, right, well, I'm going to put you on some steroids and I'm going to refer you to a neurologist at Pembury Hospital, my local hospital. So I got the prescription for these I now know whacking great steroids, um, massive steroids, which which put me out in a massive rash and everything. But they absolutely within 24 hours made me feel a bit better physically, but did not did not deal with the eyesight problem. So there I am on the steroids still at home. By this stage, I really can't see my pupils are huge black pupils. Um, I'm feeling a little bit better, but I'm very weak. And I'm practically blind. Um, and if I hadn't been so ill, I would probably have been more freaked out. But the fact that I was so weak and ill meant I was just not really cognizant of what was happening to me. So here we go. I get the appointment. My husband drives me to Pembury Hospital and I'm sitting there again for two hours to see a neurologist. And they're literally turning the lights off. It's like six o'clock and the the receptionists are clearing up. And somebody said to me, you know, why are you here? I said, oh, I'm, I've got an appointment with the doctor, whatever she was called. And they said, well, you're not in our notes and what have you. So I get finally rushed in to see this harassed neurologist at quarter past six. And she took one look at me and she said, what do you mean you can't see? And I just said, well, I, I can't see. And I must have looked shocking. And she I remember this so well, because this is when I really panicked. She mm. put glasses down and she actually said, Oh, my God. And she started looking into my eyes, tapping my knees, making me walk in a straight line, which I couldn't do, asking me questions. And she (laughs) she physically she literally sort of I could tell from her voice was panicking. She started saying brain tumor, um, neurology, uh, blah, 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 which I hadn't really thought that it could be anything in my brain. So she sent me out of the room and rang her consultant pal at King's College Hospital. I had to go off and do some MRSA tests with a nurse. She called me back in the room and said, right, we're sending you straight up to King's. This is serious. And um, I was absolutely at that point terrified, absolutely terrified. Yeah. I can remember it was almost one of those pathetic fallacy things that my husband and I came out of the hospital and it was a night when there'd been this um, meteorological phenomenon of Saharan sands 
glowing around and creating this orange-yellow glow in the sky. Do you remember that? It was, it was yeah, call it the harmony. Two years ago, and I came out to this this thing, this kind of like which I couldn't see very well, but I could just got to see like this dust, and they were going on about it on the radio, and <laughs> it felt like the world was ending. It just felt, as I say, pathetic fallacy. It was kind of so weird, scary. So next day, my husband rushes me up to King's, and I spent two and a half weeks in King's College Hospital in the neurology department, unable to see, with every known every treatment known to man that they could possibly um, give me. So I had three lumbar punctures, and they are not pleasant, let me tell you. I had um, a biopsy done on uh, um, a an arch, a vein in my head to get some, which they involved shaving my head and cutting a piece of an artery out and stitching it up again. I had um, a plasma transfusion, which was involved being hooked up to a machine for four days and then having all my blood taken out, separated into plasma and um, red blood cells. So they took the plasma out and cleaned it, put clean plasma in, all in an attempt to try and find out what the hell was wrong with me because something, some unidentifiable virus had attacked my body and particularly my brain and had decided to basically take out my optic nerves. So the optic nerves, in case people don't know, So the eye is the window to the world, the brain is the computer, and the optic nerve is the cable that sends the messages from the window, the eye, to the brain to translate into images. What's happened to me is that my optic nerves are fried. So imagine a kind of your iPhone cable is falling apart and, you know, it's not stops working. That's what has happened to my Mm -hmm. optic nerves. So every single day I'd be in hospital, needles, absolute, how many needles they stuck on me? I'm terrified of needles. It was constant needles, um, um, cannulas being wheeled around from this department to that department. Spent a lot of time with Dr. Erin O'Sullivan, the main ophthalmic neurology consultant there, who is a very plain speaking, um, high level ophthalmic consultant who didn't pull any punches and basically I remember being in a room a hot stuffy room with the mother of all headaches after another lumbar puncture and him with two other neuro two other ophthalmic specialists looking down a microscope at my eyes and talking about me in language I 20% understood which was mm-hmm. in the lines of her eyes are really screwed um so I said to my friends it was it was a nightmare. I'm sorry, but it was a nightmare. It was I was frightened. I was, you know, two hours away from home because my fam, my husband and children, from whom we were insulating, how ill I was, obviously, um, were in Kent where I live, and I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't see. I didn't really know what was wrong with me. And more to the point, nor did the doctors. Mm-hmm. And that is very scary when you have got lots of doctors sort of taking sharp intakes of breath and looking at you and basically not saying anything. And I was constantly looking for reassurance. It's optic neuritis, isn't it? And it's it's going to be okay, isn't it? And Mm. they just would say, well, your presentation is very unusual, Catherine. We, we, We don't know. We're still doing tests. No one ever kind of gave me any reassurance. So it was really, really scary. Oh, and I 
had about three brain scans, which are many, many body scans and brain scans and dye injected into my arms and wheeled around to different machines. Um, so it was just, I look back on it now as just a, a total nightmare. Um, at the end of the two plus weeks, um, I was, I was called in to see Dr. Erin O'Sullivan again and basically told that I could go home now. And there and then they issued me with a Kent Association for the Blind card as a registered severely impaired person. Mm-hmm. And I was given 10 minutes with a welfare officer in a literally in a broom cupboard that people kept barging into. So, oh, sorry, to be asked about my, you know, what support I might need. And I was still totally traumatized. Yeah. Um, and I was my husband came to pick me up and I was sent home with no explanation, no diagnosis, a huge box full of medication um, to uh, steroids and all sorts of other things. And that was that. Wow. That is one hell of an intense experience. And not only could they not diagnose after every test you could probably undergo mm. that you, you they couldn't then provide you with a a prognosis of time scale if yep. any semblance of your normal vision would come about or yeah. or, or well, what what they knew danny and what i took me 18 months to accept mm. was that i would never see again they knew um and and the penny started dropping for me months later they knew that once your op- once your optic nerves have died, that's it. You do not recover from that. You know, my my eyes are perfect, but my optic nerves, my cable is just severely compromised and damaged. And you know, it's like with if you if you if you break if you damage your spinal cord nerves in your spine, you don't walk again. Yes. Nerves to that extent don't re-knit. Your, your optic nerves are millions and millions of fibers, and they cannot be put back together. So they knew, but with hindsight, I'm kind of, I wouldn't have been able to accept it, even if they'd said it, that I wasn't ever going to see again. And that's, you know, why they gave me my Kent Association for the blind card, because, you know, they know that you've got to be registered disabled and blind in order to get all the other things, which I then went on to get, like a disabled rail card. But yeah, they knew when they let me loose that I was never going to see again. It's probably incorrect to say that the two years after that were a recovery period they were more of a coming to terms period were they yeah yeah and what was that like did they have stages like the stages of of grief grieving for your own sort of loss of sight yeah absolutely it did so two years is exactly the time scale that i would cite in terms of coming to terms with it and by the way it's now five years later and I have come to terms with it you know I'll, I'll talk about my current life in a minute I'm fine I'm fine you know I'm fine but um the first the first the first week I I was in trauma I, I was sent home and I was out of the hospital and I just couldn't I was traumatized I mm. I couldn't function i was waking i mean they they gave me um they gave me tranquilizers they gave me sedatives and i was shaking in the middle of the night and saying get my husband i was popping all these tranquilizers to try and stop myself shaking i was so 
so traumatized by it. And my poor husband was trying to kind of deal with me. Um, so that went on for, oh God, I don't know. I can't even remember, you know, a while. Yeah. I would say the period of not being able to leave the house and trauma went on for about three months. And I would lie on the sofa crying and just, you know, really in a bad way. Mm. Um, and no confidence, you know, I can't see, I can't go, I can't go anywhere. When I say I can't see, by the way, I should probably clarify what I mean by that. Mm. I have about, I always say to people, approximately 30, 35% vision. Um, and what that means for me is my world is like I'm in a very kind of misty shower. Everything yeah. is very blurred um, or like a fog. My vision is is helped or impeded by how much sunlight there is. So on a good sunny day, it's quite good and I feel perky. On a grey English day, it, it dips down. So I'd say on a really good day, I would almost say it goes up to about 40% with my right glass, with the right glasses. On a grey day, less, much less than that. So I, I do have, you know, I'm not sort of, um, I don't have limited vision in terms of my periphery vision. I have it all there but it's very, very misty. And my right eye is very damaged. I'm nearly blind in my right eye. So it's all down to the left eye. Right. So I can't drive, obviously. Yeah. Can't read. Um, I, but I, I have adapted. I managed to find my way around. So first three months, pretty grim. Um, and I was so in, I was in despair. I want, I can honestly say, it sounds so melodramatic and self-absorbed, but I didn't want to live anymore. I thought I can't, I can't live like this. I can't live this life. Yeah. I've gone from a full, a full life, a very independent, high-achieving person to this gibbering wreck that couldn't see. Uh, shocker, absolute shocker. And then what happened? It came in stages. So New Year came and went, and I, I, um, New Year's always a bit of a sort of like right. Let's it's attacked new year and I was sitting on the sofa with my best friend Emma and she was going through a tricky time at that stage and we were chatting and she said to me you know what you need to do you need to put something in your day one little thing every day that you achieve so why don't you try swimming um and why don't you so I thought yeah I'm going to do that so I, I even got a planner I got a diary and I just wrote okay Monday I'm going to take I'm going to go for a walk Tuesday, I'm going to swim a few lengths in the pool. And it was agony and I was so depressed. But I started to just like take little baby steps of going yeah. out into the world again, just achieving one little thing. And I should probably also at this stage name check the puppy that we got just before I got ill, who was and still is my therapy dog. Yeah. I was never a dog person, never wanted pets, as my family will tell you, but we got the dog and she, when I was depressed, used to lie on my stomach and sigh and look at me. And I swear dogs know when you're when you're sad. I absolutely believe in that so much. And she was my friend. We used to go. She'd take me out for a walk. We'd walk, you know, she was my yeah, huge shout out to Jessie. <laughs> but oh. you'd be barking at some stage. So. <laughs> started doing little things um then I can't believe I did this but I absolutely needed to prove to myself that I wasn't finished with and there was a point to me 
So I applied for a job that one of my contacts in uh, in the advertising industry had recommended me for working as a learning and development coach with people doing apprenticeships in management and an apprenticeship in advertising and media. So I that's a whole other story. I did that for a couple of years part time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll come back to that in a bit. So that was very, very challenging, very, very challenging indeed. But going back to the two year time span, I set myself two goals apart from the job. And one of them was to run a half marathon, which I did in Kingston upon Thames in uh, 2019, October. And the other was to go to India and do a yoga holiday because I got massively into yoga, which also helped me. And I did both those things at the end of the two years. And it was I don't know if two years is the time and or whether those two things really were what changed it for me. But I can honestly say by Christmas of 2019, so two years on, I I turned a corner. I became somebody who had finally come to terms with my situation. Mm. Um, and I think since then I've been on three years of, of, of managing it, living with it, but yeah, two years, it was, it was, it took me two years to get over it, to stop spontaneously bursting into tears, to stop having panic attacks, to stop lying under my duvet for a day thinking, well, what, what's the point of me? I think that was my overwhelming feeling. What is yeah. the point of me? You know? Um, I can't do anything. Why? What? What's the point of me? And that probably goes back to my fairly driven alpha personality. Yeah. You know, I was thoroughly kneecapped by what happened to me. I guess because suddenly, at the swish of a hand, society is now labelling you as a disabled person, yeah. which must must be quite something to come to terms with. Yes, you make a really good point, Danny. And I actually did a talk at. Um, BT, I was invited by the RNIB, the blind charity, to go and give a talk with lots of other disabled groups about disability and dealing with disability in the workplace and this kind of thing. And I candidly said in my talk that, you know, I, I, I actually put up a slide of my Kent Association for the Blind card and my Disabled Persons Rail card because, you know, it's a risky thing to say because I don't. I am a disabled person. I am a disabled person. And I now will go up to anybody and ask for help and say, excuse me, I'm visually impaired. I'm disabled. Could you help me? And people always do. Mm-hmm. But but accepting that at the age of 53, that I have an invisible but very serious disability was, it was not easy. It, it was very emotional. And I, <laughs> I remember the first time I used my disabled rail card, I just collapsed into sob sobbing at the the, the train station (laughs) i've cried in so many public places um so many times hairdressers you name it anyone who you know nice to me i'll start crying not anymore but i used to so yes coming to terms with you are a disabled person you have a disability was very very difficult i mean i remember after about a year someone saying to me oh you can probably get some money from the government so there's this thing called PIP, personal independence payment. So we applied for it. My husband filled out a 38-page form. And we I got summoned along to this horrible civic building in Ashford, which is not a pretty place. And mm. I had a two-hour interview with a woman. 
who asked me so many questions, you know, about my personal hygiene and my can I use a knife and can I do this and can I do that? And I just she had a big box of tissues on her desk. But I can remember just having to go through that and quite rightly, you know, and uh, just breaking down in tears the whole time. So, yeah, it, it was uh, it was a rough ride. Um, but, you know, what I want to come on to and what I the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, Danny, is because I am fine now. You know, I've, I've spent 10 minutes talking about poor me, how awful it was. But my particular shtick and my particular interest is how the human spirit can come through something so life changing. And my my take on it is, you know, when something awful like this happens, you have two choices. You can either um, let it beat you, overwhelm you which I nearly did, mm-hmm. or you can think, screw this. I keep wanting to swear when I <laughs> screw this. I, I do not like feeling like this. I think that was what drove me. I hate feeling this. I hate this despair. I hate this depression. I hate this misery. I don't want to feel this anymore. What can I do? I was like in a paper bag. What can I do to get away from these feelings of horrible, vile, feelings of misery and despair that was my driver yeah you know that was my driver and i i feel a fraud when people say to me as they do a lot oh you're so strong you're so amazing you're so stoical i was not a stoical person my family will tell you you know i was the person who if they cut their finger would make a massive fuss about it i was the person who i remember my sister getting chicken pox when we were in our 20s and she was really ill and she said well, all I can think, Catherine, is thank God you didn't get it because you'd have made so much fuss. <laughs> She's right. I I was never a stoic, but it, but I had that something drove me to think I can either let this, I can either carry on feeling this shit or I can push back and make these horrible feelings go away. And the, so the, the rationale was right. Little baby steps, swimming, get a job start running properly, do yoga, um, take up audio books. That was the other thing I've done. I'm a passionate mm. audio book. I always have a book on the go. I've read well over 100 books since I lost my eyesight. Um, find things that I can do. Mm. Um, jo- be Rejoice in the things that I still can do, you know, which is see my friends. I can still cook, I can, which is a passion. And slowly, 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 I came to accept it, but it took two years. I just wanted to recap slightly and, and ask you a, a question about, you know, perception shift, because you've had this successful career, um, you know, in terms of materially successful reputational achievement, uh, but albeit with a profound unaccompanying stress and then the sudden illness and, and loss of sight. And that's, of course, unwelcome in its nature, but it did cause a, I guess, a perception shift. Are there things that you once thought necessary to life, which you might now believe to be, in fact, uh, superfluous to achieving happiness and a bit of a a mirage of necessity? Mm. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's the short answer to that question. Right. You know, um, and I, I want to caveat what I'm about to say with, I hope, 
what I'm about to say doesn't seem trite in any way. Uh, people don't change unless they have to. It's one of my something I know for sure. Yeah. And I would not have changed my lifestyle unless I'd first of all had that, I suppose, semi breakdown at Ogilvy and then had my illness, which, by the way, I am convinced was caused by the chronic stress that I was enduring. Mm-hmm. Um, no doctor has ever confirmed that to me. And I'm told by my therapist that that's because no doctor ever will, because if a doctor says, yes, um, we think stress could have caused this, you will immediately then get them sucked into a personal injury claim against your employer. And the NHS does not want that. So doctors will never, ever, ever say um, this is caused by stress. Um, yeah. I've been told that. So I think it was definitely caused by stress. But pe- I changed because I had to. And it's very interesting. Um, I've told you how, how much stress and how unhappy I was, and yet I kept going. I see people my age, older, who do not need the money that they are earning. And this is where I have to be very careful. I don't sound trite because some people have to carry on with their jobs because they cannot financially afford to do what I did. But for people who have could walk away from their jobs, I see so many people who believe what I did, which is I have to earn this much money. I have to do this job. I have to commute into London. I have to go into the office until I get my pension. I must carry on because that is a vortex. And I was so, so in that place. I couldn't. I honestly believed I could not, would not, should not, could never walk away from my hundred and whatever it was, thousand pound a year salary. I used to walk down the steps of my my train station coming home and think I'd be counting how many more years I had to do this till I could afford an inverted commas to give up um and you know just a little interesting observation I um I get the train up to London still and on the back of the ticket that they issue for southeastern rail there's the Samaritans number is there on the back and it's been there for a few years Mm. and it always makes me kind of raise my eyebrows because I think why have the Samaritans worked out that people commuting to London need their number (laughs) anyway i now have so to answer your question danny i now have the laser like focus that you do not have to do this job there are other ways to cut your cake you can live on so much less than you think you can you can take your kids out of private school you can stop driving a fast car you can even sell your house and downsize but there's nothing more important than health and happiness and physical and mental health. Um, and I know that sounds so easy to say, but I have laser focus on that. And I have friends who I want to be able to say to, why don't you just walk away from it? But for some reason, they find it very, very difficult. And I hear, I, I hear them, I see them listening to me, but I don't know if they're really hearing. They, they carry on and they're stressed and well this is interesting isn't it because trauma more widely i mean with every survived trauma once the coping mechanisms have been forged and they've been embedded in routine there's a point when enough time has passed that the victim of the trauma has aged and you know thus they have the benefit 
or maybe just the utility of, of retrospect, of remembering a time past of, of who they were. And this can afford a kind of clarity of thought. I mean, I know tragically and horribly your your vision is, is clouded, but you, do, do you think that your thought processes might be now less clouded than they were? Absolutely, 100 percent. I have. I have. And again, I don't want to sound smug or trite. I have. There's nothing like a trauma to focus the mind on what really matters. You know, and yeah, I have yeah. also, I mean, I haven't had an easy time. You know, I've had I've had a few, couple of other illness things and my mother died a few months ago. And lots of tricky things have happened in the last five years in and around my life. But nothing compares, nothing, not even the death of my mother, I'm sorry to say, with 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 what happened to me when I lost my eyesight in terms of the life changing. And I I'd hate anyone ever to go through what I went through. But what I what I really wish I could do is flick a switch in in some people who would who would see that living your life, the health is so precious, survive enduring something that goes against your personal moral values or is making you ill or is exhausting you when you actually don't need that much money and you don't need to work this hard is in my humble opinion not living your life as you should and what, what it's quite interesting one last thing and i'll shut up mm-hmm. soon. No, not one last thing that i think is very interesting is the um the effect that covid has had on on people and one of the things that's happened is that I'm, I'm, I think it's about a million people have removed themselves from the workplace and those people tend to be people of around about my age you know mid to late 50s who've worked out they can draw their pension at 55 and who suddenly the penny dropped that they didn't want to go into the office anymore they don't need that much money and the hell they don't want to and there's more to life than thinking that you know as I did that some ad that was being made for Kit Kat mattered you know um it doesn't matter really when you're when you look at it in the grand scheme of of the universe i've had an incredible hour listening to your story kathy thank you so much for coming on and and talking to us i hope it's been a good experience for you as well because i think it's very important for people to hear Mm, mm. no it has danny it has and uh i have um i've enjoyed talking to you so thank you thank you very much for talking to us today Kathy, and um, wish you all the luck in the future. Thank you, Danny. Ta-ra.